So today we start with a question. Do you have a problem obeying the Lord? We are people born wanting to be king of our lives. We want what we want when we want it, right now. We are so prone to passionately pursue the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. We want our desires and we often pursue them with reckless abandon. As the Apostle Paul describes in Romans 7, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. Later he says in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death. Today our passage gives the solution to this sinful propensity. The answer to our sin and bondage that and bondage to sin is found not in human philosophies or psychology. The answer is not in us. The answer is Jesus Christ. The more we know Him, the more we want to seek Him, the more we know Him, the more the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life become both useless and repugnant to us. My prayer is today, you will get another glimpse of the King of Kings today, and you will cry out with the Apostle Paul, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with the mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. The reality is this, we need to know Christ more. The more we know Christ, the more we want to obey Him. And we will understand that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember, we are on the first missionary journey with the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. Paul is giving an exposition of the Old Testament to the synagogue in Pisidia, Antioch. That's where that little red sea is up on the mark it's in modern day turkey the missionary team has shrunk john mark had returned to jerusalem yet the missionaries moved on and started a new church in this area a different antioch than the other one up on a mountain the missionaries entered the synagogue and were given opportunity to share an impromptu exposition of the Old Testament. And last week we saw that Paul's sermon breaks down into three main parts. There's the faithfulness of God, found in verses 16 to 23, the promise of God, verses 23 to 39, and the exhortation of God in verses 40 to 41. We covered a little over a half of that first section, and we're just going to pick right back up there and keep making our way through this amazing sermon. 
Again, I could probably preach one verse a week just giving you an idea of what he's doing. He is explaining the whole Old Testament in this one sermon, giving a beautiful picture. And it's kind of it's good for all of us because what it does is it gives us the big picture view of the Bible. You're seeing that. And that's exactly what Peter did previously and what Stephen did and now what Paul's doing. In all of their sermons, they're doing the same thing. They're saying here... Here's a big picture of the Bible, and guess who's the pinnacle of it? Jesus. It's all pointing to Him. It's all about Him. And that's what He does. So we started with the faithfulness of God, and we saw that God chose Israel. In verses 15 and 16, we see that. And then God exalted Israel. It said God made the people great during their stay in the land of Israel. Egypt. And third, we saw that God delivered Israel. And we saw that in with up with and with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it, talking about leading them out of Egypt. Next, we saw God was patient with Israel in verse 18. It says, literally, for a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Oh, I don't want to be described by God this way. How about you? I don't want to be the ones that he just put up with. I want to be the ones that loved and adored and obeyed him. And beloved, that is found in knowing and adoring and worshiping Jesus Christ, as we will see. Then we saw God blessed Israel despite their sinfulness. Again, this is the characteristic of our gracious and merciful God, right? Despite disobedience, He continues to bless them. And here, God blessed them. It says, we had, when He had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, He distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. So God blessed Israel despite their sinfulness and gave him the land of Canaan. He distributed this land to a wicked and rebellious people, a people that did not always obey him, yet God is good and gracious. Finally, we left off with God appointed deliverers for Israel. In verse 20, it states, after these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. We saw how God appointed these judges to point the people back to God. The judges were, a, were deliverers with a small d. God has provided many times for this wicked and rebellious people. And God continued to give them people, men, that would help them. And in one case... The judge, Deborah, gave a lady that could help to deliver them. This is God's grace on display. This is what we see when we read the Old Testament, isn't it? We see over and over and over the sinfulness of humanity, and yet we see God doing what? Giving grace after grace after grace. Mercy after mercy. Our God is truly his mercy is new every morning. Now today we see Paul explains further God's faithfulness towards Israel. With the pinnacle of his faithfulness being the promised one. We'll see that today. 
Notice the next main point. God answered Israel's plea. In verse 21 it states, Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. Giving Israel a king was primarily a discipline from the Lord initially, especially. Again, they asked God for a king, so He gave them a king. They should have been satisfied with God as their king, but they weren't. They should have been submissive to God and enjoyed being under His theocracy. He was their God. He was their king. They were the only nation in the history of the world that God was their king. Instead, they said, we want a man over us, not God. Notice the tendency. Again, notice the Lord's explanation of these people's problems in 1 Samuel 8. It states, The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. In other words, give us a king is what they said. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Oh, friends, do you see it? There it is. That's that autonomous nature. That idea that I want to be king of myself. It's the same problem, isn't it? It's that narcissistic thinking. And by the way, it just didn't start in America. It's always been. We are people that want to be our own king. We are people that do not want God over us. This was sinful. But like so many other sinful decisions God's people made, God turned it for His good. And their good and His glory. No Jewish person considered Saul a highlight of their history. The fact of the matter, they hated Saul. They knew that he was a thorn in their history, a thorn in their side, somebody that they weren't proud of. Hearing the word from Paul reminded them, Israel blew it by not being submissive to God alone. Again, Paul is developing this sermon by showing Look how sinful Israel is. Look how good God is. He's showing that contrast all the way through. And it's all bringing to that pinnacle of God's goodness compared to man's sinfulness. The pinnacle is found where? Christ. He's the pinnacle. What happens? God gives the greatest of all kings. And they kill him. Again, Paul carries this theme of Israel's rebellion through the entire sermon. But he does it in a very, very wise way. God gave, a, gave them what they wanted. And yes, it was Saul. They got what they asked for. There's a very important application for all of us here. Be careful what you long for. <laughs> you just might get it. And it might hurt you more than it helps you. You know, this is the way God does. Think about how we look through the history of humanity. People scream, I want this. God gives it to them and they say, I don't want that anymore. And this is what they did with Israel. 
But God was trying to make a point. And God was going to use this for their good and His glory. Beloved, listen again. Be careful what you long for, what you want. If it's all about getting rich, when you get rich, you might see, I really don't want this. Beloved, it's not about the things we have. It's not about the things the world screams are so good. There is only one thing, only one thing that is all satisfying. And that one thing is not a thing, it's a person, Jesus Christ. There's only one satisfying one, it's Him. But again, like the other passages, God stepped in when Israel was crying for a king. And what did they give him? They gave him Saul. And I, we see it here. He was a man of the tribe of Benjamin. What's that mean? Well, he was one of the 12 tribes. He was from one of the 12 tribes of Israel. But that doesn't make him great. What made him who he was was a sinner that hated obeying God. And he only wanted his own glory. And his hiding from Samuel initially should have been the scream, right? It should have screamed out, this guy's more concerned with what people think than God. By the end, he was going to kill everybody he could, especially David, in order to keep his throne so that the people would like him. Beloved, he sought exactly what Israel was seeking. They were seeking their lust, and God gave them a lust seeker as their king. But notice what God does. Again, what's he do? He raises up a better king for Israel. Again, grace upon grace upon grace. Oh, I'm so thankful for these passages. They remind me just how much God loves me despite me. And that God is a kind and compassionate God. That even when we blow it, he's there. Notice Acts 13, 22. And after he had removed him, that is, God had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Again, grace for rebellion. God removed Saul and raised up David to be their king. And the king God picked what? For them was based on God's sovereign grace. This man was a man after God's own heart, which meant he was a good choice for a king, right? He was a king God had already started working on. Listen, if a person, if a man is a man after his own heart or after God's own heart, what does that mean? That means that that's a man God has begun to work in already. Because men aren't after God's heart, own heart without God working. Do you understand that? He picked one that he had already started grooming. <laughs> he had shown himself to David and David said, I want God. And that's the point. That's the kind of king we want, right? We want a king that seeks after God. That's what Israel should have wanted. Unfortunately, because they were a people that didn't want God often, they didn't make wise choices, but God knew who they needed. David was a king who did what God willed. He did all my will. Now, that's, this is a little bit uh, uh, difficult, because you all know as well as I do when you uh, meditate on 
uh, David's life, uh, most of you would probably are, uh, agree with me, how did he do all of God's will? I don't know about you guys, but when, what he did with Bathsheba, was that God's will? Okay. Well, obviously not all of his revealed will, but I would agree, that, or I would think obviously all of God's sovereign will. Do you understand that these are part of God's plan and God works despite his people? Thankfully, right? David was not a perfect king. As a matter of fact, his imperfection showed how much they needed a greater king. Always throughout the history of Israel, everybody they picked and everybody even God established for them was to show them what? That those weren't good enough. All the judges, what do we see? They were just men at best and one lady. And they were just that. People. Correct? Same thing with the kings. When you raise up a king, look, here's a king. He's not any good. Here's God's best he has to offer, David. He's really not that great either. Again, what does God do? Often he allows us to have the quote-unquote idols of our heart so that we will see just how much we need God and we need him. And what he did with David was, is he brought up just a better king. This is better. And he almost gives you a little glimpse of what Christ is going to be like. Because after all, he writes all these psalms. He does some pretty amazing things, right? But he's still a man at best. What's the history showing us? The history is showing us mankind needs a real king, the true king. What made David special, though? What was it? He was a man after own heart, his, of God's own heart. And ultimately, this means he knew how to repent. <laughs> David wasn't perfect, but when he sinned, he ran to God. He found hope in God. He found forgiveness in God. Beloved, that's what we all need to learn here and get from David's life. I don't know about you, when I think on David's life, I see... Uh, often little reflections of my own heart. But what made David so amazing was is that when he fell down, he knew where to go. <laughs> he always returned to God. Psalm 51 is one of my favorites. How about you? Reminding me that there is forgiveness in God. David was not perfectly righteous, but he knew where righteousness was found. And it wasn't in himself. It was in God. So reviewing, what do we see? What have we seen so far? Israel was chosen by God. Israel was exalted by God. Israel was blessed by God. Israel was delivered by God. Israel was given help by God. Israel was patiently cared for by God. Israel was provided for by God. And yet, they continued to complain. Grumble, rebel, sought worldly leadership, and rejected God. God was faithful. They were not. That's what Paul's saying. Look, it is a clear picture. God is faithful. Israel is not. <laughs> and for all that were listening, they should have said, God is faithful. I am not. 
here's where the problem lies. When we read the Old Testament, and when we hear stories like this, all too many people say and look and say, can you believe those wicked Jews? Those rebellious, wicked Jews. God has had enough of them. He's done with them. Why is he done with them? Because they're so rebellious. Beloved, but listen to me closely. If God's faithfulness was dependent upon how good we were, we, he'd be done with all of us. The Old Testament screams, we need a Savior. That's what it screams. All too often, I think we see ourselves in the righteous ones of the Old Testament instead of the wicked ones of the Old Testament. All too often, we identify with the ones in there, you know, like Enoch. He walked with God and he was no longer. I love that one. That's me. That's me. Rapture's coming. I'm out of here soon. No, beloved. All those that were sitting in that congregation, the weight was starting to fall upon them. The God-fearers knew. The God-fearing Gentiles knew, hey, the, the Jews blew it, but... We are them. We are them. What do we need? The suspense is growing, right? What do we need? I can't fix myself. How about you? I can't atone for all this sin. How about you? And finally we see Paul hits the pinnacle. And he says... God gave Israel a Savior. Look at verse 23. This is the pinnacle of the sermon. He's going to explode into an explanation of the glory of Christ. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Again, I want you to note, God brought to who? Israel. A Savior. He brought their Messiah from the descendant of David. He provided the greatest king. The provision was according to the promise of God. God had promised a Savior numerous times in Scripture. So the promised Savior was provided for Israel from God. By calling Jesus the Savior, Paul is highlighting the delivering nature of Christ. He came to save his people from the power and penalty of sin. Jesus is the Savior, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile also. So very interestingly, Jesus was the greater Moses. Jesus was the greater judge. Jesus was the greater king. And he is the one and only Savior. He is the message of salvation. God brought Jesus to Israel according to promise. Verse 23 is a transition verse into the next main section of the sermon. It shifts the attention from Israel to the promised one of Israel. 
Jesus. He is the pinnacle of all that God provided. He is faithfulness on display. That's who Christ is. He is the pinnacle of Israel too, by the way. He is all that Israel couldn't do. He is perfection incarnate. As we will see, the people of Israel did not respond any better to this provision either, did they? But be very careful, ladies and gentlemen. Every time we sin, we are doing, to a degree at least, the same thing. Because every time we sin, we say, the love of Christ is not enough to keep me obeying my Lord. Every time we sin. So be very careful of taking these words and twisting them into a justification of your actions. As we turn, we see that Israel rejects their king. And though God's faithfulness is on display, God gives a promise. Notice the promise one. The promise of God. The promise of God is literally the promised one of Israel, Jesus. This second main section has a A key theme Paul presents, and that key theme is the promised one, the Messiah. I normally don't like to have sub-points to sub-points in a sermon because it it can be very confusing. So what I did was I gave you a handout. Look inside your bulletin. So there's sub-points to sub-points. Don't do this normally unless it's there in the text. And there's sub-points to sub-points. In this passage, we see and Paul presents subpoints to his main point. And this is why I gave you that handout. I, I want you to be able to track the flow of argumentation that Paul gives here. First, notice there is a forerunner to the promised one. That's found in verses 24 to 25. A forerunner to the promised one. In verse 24, it states, And after John had proclaimed, before his coming, a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and while John was uh, completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. But behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. I love how this sermon... If you were to take a a, a basic look at the Gospel of Mark or a basic look at the Gospel of Luke, really of any of the synoptics, that is the Matthew, Mark, Luke, you would see the same pattern. The sermon is almost like a miniature Gospel of Mark. And that's exactly what Paul's doing. He's given a, a, a... Remember, Mark hasn't been written yet. Neither has Matthew or Luke. So Paul's giving exactly what the gospel accounts look like in miniature form. And here we see he starts out with who? John. John the Baptist. Much like the gospels do. Paul states, John started with a call to repentance to all the people of Israel. This is exactly how it starts in the gospel accounts. This was a call to turn from their sins and their religious hypocrisy in preparation For the Messiah's coming. John was the forerunner as Malachi had prophesied in Malachi 4.6. Remember that the angel had told John the Baptist's father before his birth as recorded in Luke. Look what he had told him. 
and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So what does Paul start with? He starts exactly where the Gospels did, saying John the Baptist came to prepare the way for the Messiah. As Paul stated, John always made a point to elevate Christ and minimize himself. John the Baptist got it, beloved. The gospel is Jesus is coming, not John is a great prophet. Very important, very, very important. And by the way, this is just a side note here. Any preacher that heralds himself has missed the whole point. Any preacher that makes it all about him like this Creflo dollar that needs a $65 million plane. Oh, beloved, this is not the point. Every should, everything should be about who? Jesus Christ. We must do everything to get out of the way. Everything must be about Him. And that's what, Paul, or that's what John did and that's what Paul's doing. Paul quotes John to highlight John's humble reverence for Jesus. But behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Oh, do you understand how glorious these words are that are coming from John the Baptist? I don't know about you guys, but pride is the sure exposure of a false teacher. But humility is one of the greatest displays of a true man of God. And that's exactly what we see in John the Baptist. A man that says, look, it's not about me. I must decrease and he must increase. Beloved, is that us? Is that who we are? Is that how we're characterized? Again, what made John the Baptist say these things? How could he say, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandal? Why would he say this? I'm not even worthy to unbuckle Christ's sandal. Why would he say it? Because he knew the Messiah. He knew who Jesus was. He knew that he was God incarnate. He knew that he was the Lamb of God that had come to take away the sins of the world. He understood who Christ was and that produced what? Humility. If there was one guy that knew the Bible, it was John the Baptist. He knew his Old Testament. He knew his role, and he knew it was to proclaim Jesus. What about us? The implications for us are obvious. If John says this, how much more should we humbly exalt Christ instead of ourselves? Again, this is the gospel message, isn't it? Jesus is worthy of all of our praise, not us. Don't praise us. Praise Him. Jesus is great and we are His unworthy slaves. I heard that verse again this week in my devotions. We're just unworthy slaves. Y'all consider yourself just an unworthy slave? All too often, we, we don't want to be an unworthy slave of the Master. We want to be the exalted, exalted servant maybe? but exalted to the same place as Him. 
We're like John and, and James as they say, hey, I want to sit on your right and your left. Beloved, I'm just an unworthy slave. That's what I am. In light of the glory of Christ, we're nothing. Do we fight for our rights? We, that's, that, all those things expose whether or not we're really humble. When you're mistreated, that's when you know whether or not you are humble. That's it, right there. When your wife says that one comment that kind of gets under your skin and, and doesn't give you the honor you think you deserve. Did you hear me? When she pokes you just a little bit and says that one little comment. My wife never does that, by the way. <laughs> That was sarcasm. <laughs> Beloved, when we are mistreated, our pride is exposed. You want to know whether you're a humble person? Look at your trials. That's it. Look at your trials. That shows whether your heart is submissive or not, or humble. you're always bucking against trials, you may never see just how prideful you are. John the Baptist, though, he must increase and I must decrease. I bet John the Baptist, he wasn't kicking and screaming as, his, as he was led to have his head cut off. I'm fairly sure, yep, this one makes sense. Get me out of the way so Christ can be exalted more. There needs to be no competition in this place. Christ gets all glory. Boy, that changes the way we look at persecution, doesn't it? Oh, if I can die that Christ may be exalted, then let me die. It's a totally different world. Different way of thinking. That's a thinking that exalts Christ to his proper place as King Jesus, Lord of all. Paul was setting out the perfect case for full obedience to Jesus, wasn't he? He was saying, look at John. John knew. John knew that Jesus was better. God has been faithful despite our rebellion. God has provided the promised Savior God has provided a humble forerunner who exalted the promised one. And next we see the fulfillment of the promised one. The fulfillment of the promised one. And here's your subpoint of a subpoint. First, we see Jesus' resurrection is a fulfillment. Or rejection, rather. Jesus' rejection is a fulfillment. Verse 26, it says, Brother and sons of Abraham's family, those among you who fear God. To us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the, utterance of the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down 
from the cross and laid him in a tomb. These are shocking truths. These are awe-inspiring truths. Up till this point, in this sermon, everything is screaming, humanity is bad, God provides good. Humanity is bad, God is faithful. Humanity is wicked, God is loving. And then comes the pinnacle. Humanity is wicked and God provides a Savior. And what do they do? They kill Him. They kill Him. Now at this point in the story, every one of us as we understand the gospel, we all scream, Injustice! How in the world could they kill the perfect Son of God? How in the world could they do it? And at the very moment we scream that, we have forgot the whole message. Because we have to understand at the very moment we scream that, we are screaming our own condemnation. For it is because of our sin that He came to die. This message of salvation is obviously the message of Jesus Christ. It is for the Jew as well as the God-fearing Gentile, as he mentions at the beginning. He was presented to those who lived in Jerusalem, Jesus was. But he was rejected by the religious ones in Jerusalem. This rejection even was a fulfillment of Scripture. Oh, this is glorious truth. The promised one was the fulfillment of the promises of God. Paul could be alluding here to Psalm 118, 22, or several other passages. But when he says that they did all that was written concerning him, when they accomplished all that, this was all part of God's plan. Do you understand how glorious this is? Psalm 118, 22, it says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is it. The whole tension of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility is left front and center in the gospel presentation once again. And I'm, I'm more and more convinced as we go along and as I study through Scripture and I see these evangelistic sermons, the more I think I need to present God's sovereignty and man's responsibility side by side, even in evangelistic sermons. This is an evangelistic sermon. And he leaves these tensions just sitting right by themselves. God is sovereign. They did all that God had sovereignly ordained to happen. And yet they are responsible for rejecting their Messiah. And he just sits them there. And ha do you remember, beloved, as we've gone through Scripture, this is exactly what Peter did. This is exactly what Stephen did. This is what every sermon, these evangelistic sermons are doing. They're leaving these truths just sitting side by side. And all the scoffers, they do what with that? They say, I can't reconcile it. How do I reconcile? God is sovereign. He had his son killed. He predetermined his son's death. And man is responsible. They killed him. And all the scoffers says, what do I do with this? What do I do with that? You know why the scoffer says that? Because the heart is dead. Listen, 
There are truths that sit by, side by side in Scripture and they're in the mind of God and they are to be trusted. That's what we do. We trust God. Why do we trust God? Because we know, we know that if it was left up to our sovereignty, we would never save ourselves. And we could never save ourselves. We needed God to work despite our sinfulness in order for us to be saved. He had to work in our, our sinfulness in order for it to even be able to be accomplished. Do you see the glory of that? That God would work in humanity's wickedness to bring about the deliverance of His people. That is the glory of God on display. This is so interesting to me. Here we see the Jewish leaders are held responsible for the rejection of the Messiah. But at the same time, God's sovereign choice is presented. Notice, and though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate to be, that he be executed when they carried out all that was written concerning him. <laughs> what do we see in those two verses? Man's responsibility, God's sovereignty. They're sitting there again in the middle of a sermon. What did they do? They found no ground for putting him to death. That means he was what? Innocent. They asked Pilate that he be executed. They killed an innocent man. They broke the very law that they said that they were trying to keep. And in their sin, they rebelled against God, did they not? But all of it was what? when they had carried out all that was written concerning him. God had ordained for it to go down that way. Again, notice these words are almost identical to Peter's words at Pentecost in Acts 2.23. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Side by side. Always. So what do we do with it? We trust God, right? Isn't that what it's all about anyway? The Jewish leaders were responsible, but they were doing exactly what was written concerning Jesus. Friends, we read this. We hear this. We say this. We say that we agree. But when bad things happen to us, we complain, grumble, tremble, and tremble in fear. What also is clear from Paul's words is Jesus was innocent. This again is a crucial point. It is the glory of our Savior. Notice, though there was no ground found, or they found no ground for putting him to death. This is the reason Jesus' death is so priceless. He was innocent. He was the righteous sacrifice, the innocent Lamb of God that died for guilty sinners like me and you. The wicked religious leaders and the Roman guards were just pawns in God's divine plan to be both the just and the justifier of those who believe in Christ. Praise God for His predetermined plan to save a people for Himself through His Son's substitutionary sacrifice. So first, Jesus' rejection is a fulfillment of God's plan. Notice second, Jesus' resurrection is a fulfillment also. 
In verses 30 to 37 we see, But God raised him from the dead, and for many days Jesus, he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. The very ones who were, are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. That God has fulfilled this promise to our children. In that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in, second, in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he, was, he raised him up from the dead. No longer to return to decay. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he, that is Jesus, whom God raised, did not undergo decay. Look at the beauty of the resurrection here that's revealed in this sermon. First, notice God responded by raising Jesus from the dead. And again, these are two of the finest words in Scripture, and I look for them all the time. Again, in light of the depravity of man in rejecting the Messiah, but God raised him. We're back to but God. Isn't that the way God is? It's always the contrast to us wicked humans. But God. Wicked rebellion, that's us. But God. He raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus was seen by many, it says. And for many days he appeared to those who came with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. I just see the irony of this. He takes a bunch of Jewish fishermen and shows himself off to a bunch of wicked Jewish fishermen and a tax collector. And yet those religious, hypocritical leaders didn't see him. They killed him and didn't see him. Jesus' resurrection was proclaimed by his witnesses. And these fishermen that had all abandoned him at his arrest, now became his witnesses to the people. Jesus' resurrection was a fulfillment of God's previous promises. Notice, and it says, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the Father, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, in that he raised up Jesus Oh, this is glorious, isn't it? Do you understand, folks, that the whole Old Testament screams, there's coming a Savior, there's coming a Savior, and He will die, and He will rise from the dead, and His body will not undergo decay. As Psalm 2 states, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, I have to admit to you, this is a, not an easy passage. And if you were doing uh, exposition of Psalm 2, it would be a little bit difficult. And I will tell you that the way that uh, Paul interprets and explains this passage is excellent hermeneutics. You know why? Because it's led by the Holy Spirit, which means it's perfect. However, for me, it's not always perfect when I go to the Old Testament. And I have to be careful of thinking that I am an apostle 
and able to speak that way. So what does Psalm 2 mean? Well, I think he's pointing to, and Paul states that it points to the resurrection of Christ. One commentator explained this Psalm 2 fulfillment this way. He states, In the context, Paul seems to have been implying the day of Jesus' resurrection fulfills Psalm 2-7. Jesus was indeed the Son of God from all eternity, correct? And recognized as such throughout his earthly life. But it was through the resurrection that he was exalted to God's right hand, enthroned as the Son of God, and recognized as such by believing humans. It was through the resurrection that he was declared the Son of God with power. And again, what does it mean um, when he says, Today you are, or as for you, are my son, today I have begotten you? It's not saying that he birthed him at that spot. Begotten doesn't mean at that point he was born. In this context, it points to recognition or acknowledgement. Today I have acknowledged or recognized or revealed you, Jesus, through this resurrection that you are my son. The resurrection reveals who Jesus was already. Understand that. When Jesus rose from the dead, beloved, it says Jesus is the Son of God. It's not that Jesus began, became the Son of God when He rose from the dead. It's not that Jesus became the Son of God when the Holy Spirit came upon Him. He was the Son of God from eternity past. But by the resurrection, we know that He is the Son of God. And that He's the fulfillment that all that the Davidic promises said, and I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. So through the resurrection, we know that he is the son of David too. He's not only the son of God, he's also the son of David. How do we know that? Because he rose from the dead. And how do we know that he is the pinnacle of the son of David? Why isn't it David? Who's the pinnacle of the son of David? How about David? No. How do we know that Jesus is the pinnacle of the son of David? Answer, because his body did not undergo decay. He was raised from the dead. David's body, that's what Paul says, is still in the ground. It's decaying. Do you understand what this means? What this whole sermon is screaming. Jesus is not just a man. Jesus is not just a prophet. Jesus is not just a a judge. Jesus is not just a deliverer. Jesus is not just a king. Jesus is the pinnacle and the one worthy of all of our obedience and reverence and enjoyment and obedience. Do you understand? That's what this sermon's saying. That's what Paul's saying. He's at the pinnacle of the pinnacle. Jesus is the one. And finally we see, look what his resurrection provides. His death, burial, and resurrection provides forgiveness in the promised one. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. These must have been some of the sweetest words out of Paul's mouth. 
the audience must have said, Hallelujah! Praise God! Because remember, the whole sermon has been showing just how wicked what? Humanity has been. Over and over, rejection, rejection, God's faithful. They're rejecting, faithful, rejecting, faithful, rejecting. Give the Son, reject Him. And God says, He rose from the dead. Therefore, He provided forgiveness of sin. Rejection, resurrection, brings forgiveness through Him. This is what it's all about. This is what we proclaim to you as what Paul said. And this is what I proclaim to you too. Your hope is found in Jesus alone. Everyone who believes is freed from all things. I believe this all things is pointing to the law of Moses. You say, why am I saying that you're freed from the law of Moses? Because listen, you're no longer in bondage to sin. If you have believed in Christ, you're no longer, you don't have to sin all the time. You have a king. You have a new Lord. You have a new heart. You have been born again. You can now serve him. And the fact of the matter is, is what did the law do anyway? It couldn't free us, could it? The law of Moses condemned everybody. It showed all of us had no hope. When we look at the law, it says you're in bondage to sin. Do you understand that? The Mosaic law, you read it properly, you understand it properly, you're going to say, I have no hope in myself. I can't do it. But Jesus did what the law could not do. What did he do? He freed us from the law. He freed us from sin and the bondage that it incurs. And provided forgiveness for the sins that we had done. Wow, isn't this an amazing sermon? I mean, in each verse you've got a theology book. You say, why is this so important, Mike? Oh, beloved, do you understand that if we truly understand what these words mean, that we can walk in the joy of the Lord forever? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. How can we say what the Apostle Paul said? Because we know that our Redeemer lives and our sin is paid for. We're right with the King. We have new hearts and new lives and we're not in bondage to sin anymore. If you understand the gospel, you're going to respond exactly like they people did, especially the God-fearers, most of them, and some of the Jews responded. We'll talk about this next week, but ultimately it comes down to this. I want to hear more. I want to hear more. You know who Christ is. I got a feeling you'll be back next week. <laughs> the more we know Him, the more we love Him. The more we love Him, the more we want to obey Him. He is our Savior. Let's exalt Him today. Let's pray.
Father, you are kind and gracious to us. You have provided to these wicked, rebellious sinners that we are. Forgiveness of sin is found in Christ, and we are freed from the bondage of sin and death, and we are able now to obey you, our Lord. Father, I pray that if there's some in here that are in bondage to sin and they have not come to understand the glory of the gospel, that they don't understand who Jesus is and what he's done for them, I pray that the Spirit, right now, I pray, Spirit, that you will work in the hearts of those who do not know you. Cause them to see the, the wickedness of their sin and the wretchedness of their dis, uh, position and their condition and help them to turn to Christ. Oh God, grant salvation. Please save. And Father, for us who know the glory of Christ, we all confess that even in our knowledge of Him, we all too often look more like David than we do like our Savior Christ. God, we want to be different. We want to walk with you. We want to serve you. And we know that this happens by you showing more and more of yourself to us. Oh God, show us your glory. Show us Christ more. Let us pursue him. Let us find our satisfaction in him. And then may we serve and glorify and proclaim you to the world. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.